0: Weekend, how many of you served or are serving in the military? You're here this evening. You served in the military. You are serving. And uh, we ought to be appreciative of those that have paved the way for our freedom. I think the kids are second grade and down are going out now, some of them, yeah. Well, you, um, the, um, the, the, I want to say this to you, and I mean this as you travel around parts of the world that don't enjoy the freedoms we have, when you get off the airplane here in America, I know you complain a lot on media and things about our nation, but uh, we live in a great nation. We've been so blessed of God to be able to have what we have here. And uh, I was preaching in uh, Sudan, Khartoum, Sudan, about four years ago. Strong, strong Muslim country. Very little mission work. A lot of mission work is now being done in South Sudan, in Juba, but very little being done in Khartoum and because of the Islamic oppression in that region. And if you're following any news, the last uh, month or so, there's been factions fighting in the city of Khartoum. And one of the great missionaries, uh, local pastors, church planners that I've ever known, Brother Angelo Nasser, I've been with him and preached with him at different times, and uh, great independent Baptist church just on the outskirts of Khartoum in a town... Uh, um, called Dar es Salaam, just like the Dar es Salaam of Tanzania. And, um, and, uh, the, he said, uh, him and his family, at times over the last month and, a, month and a half now, I guess, have been having to hunker down to keep from getting caught in crossfire. That all the, uh, local stores are shut up. Banks are closed down for the time being. The, the, the things like water and electricity are, are already, which were already on a blink are working less and less. And so you ought to appreciate when you go home tonight and you, and you turn your lights out and you go to bed, you got to lay there and just think for a minute about the goodness of God in your life. Amen. Not only in God allowing you to be born in a country where you probably heard the gospel at a tender age, but also being able to go to bed at night and not have the fear of being oppressed because of your faith. Uh, I was preaching in uh, Elmenia. Uh, Egypt, just about six hours south of Cairo. And I walked into a church, an independent Baptist church filled up with people, probably 700 people there that night, but a strong Muslim presence, radical Muslim in that part of Egypt. And they had, because I was coming, they had put up a bulletproof, vest, a bulletproof glass in front of the pulpit. I preached like this that night, you know. There are about six or eight military men standing outside the door with AK-47s. Frisking everybody. Had a metal detector at the door. Checking out everybody that came through the door. Cars pull up. They'd check for bombs underneath the cars. Pull up at church. And so when you come to church and you carry your Bible, you ought to carry it proudly. And you ought to be thankful that you live in a nation where people like our veterans have given the ultimate cost to give us what we have in, the, in this great land that we live in. Take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter number 8. And I am excited about being here tonight. I drove this afternoon. I preached in a church in a place called West Berlin, New Jersey this morning. So then I got through the traffic of Washington, D.C. and made it over here just about an hour before service. They had a Memorial Day picnic after church. So as a good Baptist, I had to stay and get some of their chicken. And uh, then I got on the road and made it down here. And then I'm headed to Chesapeake tomorrow to be at a church on Wednesday night. I get to go home and see my beautiful wife on Thursday, and then I leave for Texas on Monday. So pray as I travel that I'll be safe on the roads. My wife already threatened me several times about texting and driving, and uh, so I'm I'm very careful not to let her know that I do that. And, uh, and, And so pray for me that I'll be safe and that we'll be effective in trying to help. You know, one of the benefits, Pastor Bishop, of traveling to so many places is you enjoy getting to meet people. And uh, learn the ministry from different vantage points, but also if you're at a church and they're going out door knocking or something, you go out with them and knock on doors. I, I was able to see four people saved in Syracuse, New York, just a couple weeks ago, and then I was up in Vermont, and me and the pastor there had eight folks saved in Vermont, of all places, Vermont. Can you imagine people get saved in Vermont? You know, and of course I was up in Maine. I was up in Maine two weeks ago. It's 31 degrees. I mean, Florida was calling me while I was there. Uh, but it's a blessing to be here with you tonight. I want to read for you three verses of Scripture out of the book of Luke chapter 8. And I want you to play close attention to verse number 3. Verse number 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. And I'll read verse 1, 2, and 3. And you can follow along with me from the pages of the Bible. And it came to pass afterward that He, that's talking about Jesus... Went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. Verse three. This is our text verse, the latter part. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's servant, or steward, and Susanna, and many others, now don't miss this last phrase, which ministered unto him, unto Jesus, of their substance. That's an important part of that verse. They, these women ministered unto the Lord of their substance. Their substance was the things they owned. Their possessions. And they ministered. They ministered. Jesus, Jesus was a Galilean. He lived right alongside the Sea of Galilee. In Galilee, in the days of Christ, there were about uh, two hundred and four, two hundred and five villages and towns. The larger ones were places like Capernaum and Tiberias, but then there were a lot of smaller ones. In verse one, we're told that during the three and a half ministry of Christ, he preached in all of them. It went to every one of them, preaching. Said in verse number one, also that he carried his disciples with him, the twelve apostles, Peter, James, John, all the rest, traveling with him everywhere he went, sleeping in different places, doing all this work for the Lord in heaven. And and then in verse two and three, we're told that there were the other women that traveled with him, and it gives the name of three of those women: Mary Magdalene and Joanna uh, and Susanna. And then it says many others, which probably means that there wasn't four or five or six. Uh, There are probably uh, several, maybe a couple dozen women that travel alongside. Can you imagine this? With the Son of God helping Him to reach people. Helping Him to minister. Helping the disciples. Helping Jesus to reach people for the kingdom of of God. When I was a little boy... um, Uh, The uh, Sunday school teacher in my youth, my father pastored the church I was at last week in Vermont, the Bull Baptist Church, for six and a half years of my life. And then he became pastor down in Florida 37 years ago. But when I was a little boy, I'd sit on the little bench in Sunday school with a chair, and I'd watch Sunday school teachers time and time again take a, a felt board. You know what felt boards are? And they used what they called in those days flannel graph. Now, they probably don't, probably y'all young people over here, you never had the beautiful uh, opportunity of watching a flannel graph a Sunday school lesson. But they'd take these flannel graph figures and they'd post them up on the on the board. And as a little boy, I was always sitting on the edge of my seat waiting to see which one went up next. And what was going to be the next one. and uh, And all that. Probably kids today would fall asleep in Sunday school. You're so entertained to death that that wouldn't entertain you, but it entertained me nonetheless. But in my mind, I can, I could I could see Jesus there, and I could see his disciples there. But I never, as Jesus was traveling, I never pictured these women being with him everywhere he go. Said he went to every city, so every place he goes in Galilee, here's Jesus feeding. Healing, preaching, miracles. Here's the disciples. And then here's this group of women. And they're ministering alongside. They're helping Jesus minister, the Bible says, with their substance. And uh, um, I, I love to read biographies of great Christians. I, I love to read autobiographies of great missionaries. If you went to my house, I have an office at our house in Middleburg, and then at our church I have another office, and a good third or maybe a quarter of my library is books written about the lives of great believers. Because I'm always interested in learning the historical value, but also I enjoy learning about the faith of others that went before me. I sort of feel like I'm part of a bigger team and I'm I'm part of that that legacy of, of those that carry the gospel. So I, I have books on my shelf of missionaries from Africa like Robert Moffat. Y'all ever heard heard of Robert Moffat? He was the father-in-law of David Livingston. Remember Livingston? Livingston traveled around Africa thirty thousand miles around parts of Africa, preaching. And that was in the early to mid-1800s. And that was before 747s. And uh, and before uh, trains. And it was before big steam engines. And he traveled mostly by foot. And, and he went about preaching the gospel. Livingston said one time, he said in his writings, he said, God only had one son. And he made him a missionary. And he said that the The love of Christ ought to to carry the missionary to places where the slave trade carries the slave master. He loved the souls of Africans. I've preached at the very pulpit of Robert Moffat. I've been in the Kuruman mission and stayed the night there. The printing press there in the Kuruman mission. uh, The first Bible, trivia question, the first Bible ever printed on the continent of Africa was in Kuruman, South Africa. Printed off the printing press of Robert Moffat, the Bechuana language. Moffat stayed in South Africa preaching to the Bechuana people in the 1810s and the 1820s with little fruit. And One day his wife said to him, in a way that only wives can score, a stick a knife in the side of you like that and twist it, said to him, if you learn the mother tongue, they'd listen to you better. Instead of using a translator. He began to dive in, Pastor Bishop, and learn the mother tongue of the Botswana tribe, which takes up today the area of Botswana and Namibia and parts of South Africa and parts of Zimbabwe and that region of Africa. They speak the Botswana language and and he began to dive in and learn the language and and he began to translate the New Testament into the Botswana language And, and then as he began to preach, not only just a... A few handful be saved, but suddenly a dozens at a time would come to Christ. That large mammoth structure that's well over 200 years old that he built there in Kuraman still stands there today as a testimony of his faithfulness. Over a period of years of his life, over 40 years of his life, he and his wife stayed there on the continent of Africa reaching the Bechuana people and literally thousands of Africans came to Christ. And that printing press still sits there at the Kuhlman mission. I enjoy reading stories like that. I enjoy reading the stories of, of William Carey who for 40 years went to India. Such a desperate place, especially in those days where the Hindi people didn't have copies of the Word of God, where they're steeped in idolatry with 30,000 pagan gods that they worship. And and, and he went there as a team and, and stayed there in Sarampore. I've been in the very first church that he started in Calcutta. Today it's called the Cary Baptist Church. And when you walk in the Cary Baptist Church, large auditorium with a balcony, an old pulpit up here, big old pillars on the front of that church, and over Against the far wall, a baptistry stands against the far wall, and a plaque next to that baptistry, and it says, In this baptismal pool was baptized Anne and Adonai Judson when they came to India. Remember the Judsons, they went to Burma. On the way over there were congregationalists, but by the time they got off the boat, they were Baptist. Because someone convinced them that baptism was by immersion. By immersion. Of course, later they left there after learning the Burmese language and went down into Burma and reached people for the Gospel for many years and also translated the Burmese Bible, New Testament, still used today in Burma, translated the Burmese Bible into the Myanmar language there and spent their life trying to win people to Jesus there in Burma. But I enjoy these stories, but I'm getting somewhere. So give me a second. But I also enjoy the stories Pastor Bishop Of reading that those that helped them preach the gospel. Men like George Grenfell that went to the Congo River. I don't have time to tell you the whole story. But he traveled up the Congo River for 25 years of his life. At that time in Africa, they didn't start churches and win people in the interior. Because Africa is known as the white man's grave. And so all the missionaries coming in the 1850s and 1840s, 1830s, they just went along the coastal regions of Africa, preaching the gospel, starting churches. But nobody traversed into the interior hardly. And someone said in England at the Baptist Mission Society, said if we build a steam engine, it'd travel up the Congo River. I've baptized African chiefs in the Congo River. Get down there and start looking for crocodiles like that. Hope that it come up with both legs and all ten toes. George Grenfell didn't know much about engineering, but they sent that boat down. They dismantled the the steamship called the Peace. About a 25, 30 foot long boat with a big steam engine. And it was supposed to help get the gospel into the interior by using the Congo River. And they dismantled it in England and put it in 200 boxes and sent it down to Kinshasa. Kinshasa on one side of the Congo River, Brazzaville on the other side, and in the middle is what's called the Stanley Pool. They began to put that boat together. They sent an engineer from England. He, with the help of some of the locals, were going to put that boat together. But they suddenly realized that he was sick with yellow fever and the engineer died. So they sent back to England and they said, send us another engineer. And he came down after several weeks and he got to Kinshasa and he began to put that boat together and he died of fever. How would you like to be the third guy they call? (laughs) Finally, someone said, George Grenfell's up in Cameroon and he's with his family there and he knows a little bit about mechanics. Maybe he can put it together. They brought George Grenfell down there. And he began to work on that boat. He was used to the African culture. And he spent many weeks putting it together. And then after putting it together for 25 years, I've got a picture in my office from the late 1800s. 25 years he traveled up and down the Congo River preaching Jesus and starting Baptist churches. But that boat cost 6,000 pounds. And it was paid for by a man by the name of Robert Arthington that you never heard of. Robert Arthington was saved as a young boy at the South Parade Baptist Church in Leeds, England. His mom and dad were not saved. His dad owned a brewery, but he came to the Baptist Church there in Leeds, England, and he heard the gospel, and Mr. Robert Arthington's own father accepted Christ as his Savior. When he got saved, he sold his brewery. He turned all of his investments into the railroads of Europe and made investments with his money. And it multiplied several times over. And when he and his wife died, they left all the money to their son Robert, their only child. Robert was a good, faithful Christian man. He didn't ever marry. He lived somewhat like a hermit or a recluse. He lived in a mansion, but only had just a few simple things there inside the mansion to live by. Wore the same coat one time, they said, for 12 straight years without buying himself an extra pair of clothing. And, and, and he began to invest his money that his mother and father left him into the gospel ministry. And it was his pounds, his English pounds, that built that, that boat George Grenfell that for 25 years traveled the Congo River. You see, we talk about the lives of the missionaries that travel out across the ocean and preach the gospel, but somebody is holding the rope. Somebody has to come alongside and say, I'll give of my substance to help preach the gospel across the ocean. And that's what missions giving is all about. And that's what we're talking about this evening. See, life is more important than just me and my outcome. There's more to life than my temporal body here on this earth and my own joy and happiness. There's a, there's a world of people that need Jesus. Some of them live within the shadow of this steeple right around this neighborhood in Alexandria. Some of them live in a foreign land back in some little bush area. Many of them will live and die. I'm not exaggerating tonight. I've been to many of these places will live and die and never see a copy of the Bible. Never know one Christian. Never have a gospel track in their hand. Never see an online preacher. Never attend a Bible preaching church or any other church of that kind for that matter. It takes the person going to the field to preach the gospel, but it takes somebody saying like these women said, I'll give of my substance. I'll help Jesus reach people. I'll supply the need. I didn't come from a... Long history of Christian family members. My father, as I said, been my pastor most of my life. My mother and father are both from the state of Arkansas. You'll forgive us for that. They say the best way to see Arkansas, in case you ever go, is through the rearview mirror. But my father from a little town called Coal Hill, Arkansas. You never heard of Coal Hill. If you blink once or twice driving through it, you miss it right on the edge of the Ozark Mountains near Ozark, Arkansas, and Clarksville, Arkansas, about 45 minutes from Van Buren, Fort Smith, that area. And my father was born into what would be called a dysfunctional family today. There were 11 children. They didn't go to church. My grandpa Pledger, Huey Pledger, was an honorary man that didn't believe in God, didn't want to have nothing to do with preachers. One day my grandma Pledger, May Ellen Pledger, went down to the First Baptist Church, a little Southern Baptist Church in Cole Hill, and got a Bible and brought it home. She wrapped it up in a towel so my grandpa wouldn't find it. He came home and found that Bible, and he opened up that towel and took the Bible and threw it into the oven, burnt it. wood stove burnt it. So don't ever bring that blanky blank book back in this place. My, mom, my, my father's uh, mom and dad... Were separated three separate times in the late 1940s, and finally divorced. Back in a day when divorce wasn't common like it is today in America. My 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 father and his younger siblings ended up in an orphanage, for he was there for five years of his childhood in an orphanage. I don't know if you ever deal with people that go through abandonment, and go through lack of trust for authority and for other people. But they they can develop anger and resentment inside their heart. Maybe tonight you're here and somebody has mistreated you in your childhood. And the memories of that still loom heavy in your heart. My father was a young, bitter young man growing up in an orphanage. People tried to love him. He wouldn't let them love him. My My family was broken. My father's family was broken. In 1954, my oldest uncle... Roy Pledger. He's now in heaven, thank God. There were no pledgers saved at the time. He went up on top of a mountain, lived in a log cabin, just to get away from his mean old father. The cabin belonged to my great, great adopted grandmother. Her and two other old maids lived in the cabin. Then it was abandoned. It was just down the road. I mean, within here to the back wall of the very house my father was born in. Altus, Arkansas. My Uncle Roy got inside that cabin, cleaned it up a little bit, was just gonna live there so he could stay out of the nightmare of living with his father. When he got inside that cabin, there was a bed and a chair. There was a steamer trunk. Y'all know what a steamer trunk is? Used to travel back and forth on the trains with steamer trunks. That very steamer trunk belonged to my great-great-grandmother. I've got it in my bedroom in Florida. You open it up and it's got her picture inside of it. Cause she used to read the Bible. And the memories of my uncle living in that log cabin as a boy. He remembered his grandmother reading Bible to him as a little boy. I guess he probably went up on that mountain to get away from his father. But also to feel a little bit like God was near. 17 years of age one night. He turned on a little radio in that room. There's a tower on the outside of the log cabin at the time someone had built. And he turned on that radio one night, a little transistor radio, and he heard that there was a Baptist evangelist by the name of J. Harold Smith coming to Clarksville, Arkansas to preach a tent revival. My Uncle Roy got out the next day. He'd never been exposed to the Gospel. He hitchhiked 14 miles to come underneath that tent. I just The very spot that tent was erected in Clarksville with my wife because it's holy ground. My Uncle Roy heard the Gospel that night and walked an aisle and became the first pledger in my immediate family to ever get saved. But he didn't stop there because God began to work in His heart He had a burning desire to see other people saved, particularly his own family. Fast forward from 1954 to 1967. My mother and father were living in sin. Drinking, smoking, womanizing, living in open adultery. And my uncle Roy, who at that time was pastor of the first church he'd ever pastored came by and walked inside and began to try to witness to his brother and sister-in-law. They didn't get saved, but they promised to come to revival that week. And on the second night of that revival, an old-time preacher by the name of Harold McConnell. Harold McConnell's now in his mid-90s and still preaching the gospel. Living in Oklahoma, a place called Poto, Oklahoma. In two weeks, he'll be preaching in our pulpit in Florida. 95 years of age, still preaching the gospel. He stood up that night and began to make Jesus look good and hell bad. My father and mother had been in church in 12 years. But when they heard the gospel that night, something began in the heart of my father that he hadn't gotten over since then. He let go of that pew and he walked the aisle and he asked Jesus to be a Savior wasn't long after when I was just born in 1969, three or four month old, he took off to Bible school to train for the ministry. I'll be out knocking doors and talking to people about the gospel, and I'll see reprobates and pagans and people that don't have any desire for things of God. Uh, Sometimes, as you do here in this area, I'm sure, see little kids without any clean clothes on, beer cans falling out the front door of the trailer. And I'll... In my mind, go back to the thought that, if it weren't for the grace of God, that could be my father. That could be me. You see, I'm not just trying to get you to feel pity for my family deceit, what I want you to realize is that when J. Harold Smith came to Clarksville, Arkansas, and preached my uncle down the aisle at the age of 17, 1954, it wasn't just a sermon. somebody paid for that tent. That radio message that he turned on, some Baptist church member paid to put that on the air. And what if they never had? What if they do what our folks in Florida do that go to our church and say, well, I I got my tax return and want to get a bigger boat. What if they just decided as our American communities become so petty and materialistic, just to spend it on the vanities of this world? You see, there were some bodies that paid for the tabernacle that Billy Sunday preached under in Manhattan when 50,000 people got converted in an eight-week campaign. But there were a lot of people that, that went around inviting their friends. These women that I'm talking to you about tonight, they never stood up and sermonized with the apostles. But They ministered. Oh, they ministered. Because when the Son of God was traveling for three and a half years, meeting the dredges of society in Galilee, He needed their support. He needed them to follow behind after Him. And when He beckoned for their help, they were ready. And let me give you just one thought and I'll finish. Maybe two thoughts because I'm a Baptist. One thought. They were motivated by grace. These women were not pedigreed. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed when Jesus met her. And I'm sure when he needed help with anything he was doing, her mind would race back to the time when her body would writhe on the ground in pain. And she'd recall what life was like before she met the Son of God. He didn't have to beg her to keep the church nursery. He didn't have to beg any of them to drive a bus. He didn't have to beseech them and plead with them to put a little extra in the offering. Because these women that followed Jesus, their mom and dad weren't Sunday school teachers. Their daddies weren't Baptist preachers. They were mutts from the other side of the track. And they were saved and knew it by grace. And it was that grace that inspired them to give. Can I say this to you all that are here tonight? And I know I'm speaking to the choir when it comes to good people and good servants of God. But don't do what you do in the ministry to please people. Because you'll be sorely disappointed at some point. Don't do what you do for the Lord in this church. Simply to keep the preacher off your back. By the way, if he ever asks you to drive a bus and says something like this, it'll only be one week. He's lying. Hey, Lion, you'll be driving that bus for 12 years and it started one week. But don't, don't, don't serve the King of Kings just because you're going to feel bad. You ought to search your heart and say, if I'm going to preach the gospel, if I'm going to sing in the choir, I want to do it for him. I want to do it for those nail scars in his hands. I want to do it because He loves me. He is worthy. worthy. And then I'll say this. There was one of them women, the Bible talks about in verse 2, verse 3 I think it is. And her name was Joanna. And her husband's name was Chusa. Aren't you glad for names like Tom and John and Joe? I think when we get to heaven, everybody's got to have a one-syllable name like Tim or something like that. You know, shortened version of Timothy but uh, choose the Bible says work for, the, for Herod the steward of Herod and this Herod was Herod Antipas Herod Antipas took the head off John the Baptist so this wasn't friendly people this woman that came to Christ Joanna her husband was working for the foe of the son of God and when he'd get his paycheck at the end of the week He'd do what all good husbands do and give it to his wife. And then she would take money from the coffers of Herod and do an end around over here and give it to the work of God. Now, don't God have a sense of humor? Hey, whatever talents you have in your life, if you use them to serve self and Satan and the flesh and the world before you got saved, when you get saved, use them for His glory. Don't hide your talents under a bushel. Don't pretend you can't do things in the church house. Everybody, I said everybody, has a certain quality and has a certain skill and has something God has gifted you with, and you can use it for eternal purposes. There are no small parts of the body of Christ. All of it's necessary. And you might be here tonight and say, Well, Brother Tim, I understand what you're saying, but... I could never get on a plane go sleep on the ground in Africa and preach the gospel. You say, Brother Tim, I, I could never play a piano like one of the pianists or the organ. I could never do a violin or a clarinet. I, I don't have talents like other people. i I just sort of a nobody. Everybody in this room has a purpose. God put you on this earth for a reason. Young man, stop underestimating the power and grace of God. God could use you to go to some little village somewhere and learn a tribal language and one day preach the gospel to an entire tribe that otherwise could live and die and go to hell and never hear of Jesus. But if you never travel across an ocean, and if you never get on an airplane and go start a church in some place in Asia... You can say, by the grace of God, like these women, I can minister. I can hold the rope. I can support those that are preaching the gospel. I can minister unto Him or unto them with my substance. That's why God could use you, how God could use you. The word minister there, it comes from a Greek word. I'm not a Greek scholar. I, I, I crammed four semesters of Greek into six when I was in Bible school, if you know what I mean. But that word comes from a Greek word, diakono, which is where we get our word deacon. These were not deacons in the church. Mary Magdalene was not a deacon in the church. When we use the word deacon, we typically use it in the noun form. This is a verb. They deaconed unto him of their substance. In other words, you may not fulfill the office of a deacon, but everybody can be a servant. You can take what God has blessed you with and help those that are out there preaching the gospel and saving souls from hell. We got eight buses at our church in Middleburg. One of them goes to the downtown part of Jacksonville and picks up between 25, 30 homeless men every Sunday. All those buses are held together by... Grace, baling wire, and duct tape. But somebody had to pay for those buses. And the duct tape, that's right. Somebody had to say one day, I believe in what we're trying to do here. And that's what I'm saying to you about helping missions around the world. Find you a place. Find you somewhere that needs Jesus. And if you never travel down to that place and ever preach the gospel there, say, by the grace of God, I'm going to have a part in getting the gospel to that region of the world. Now, maybe you're here tonight, and I know this, a good church like this you've heard the gospel many a times, but there could be somebody sitting here like I was as a little boy going to a Baptist church with my father as the pastor and could do John 3.16 forward and backwards. But you're not going to heaven because you quote John 3.16 forward and backwards. Jesus said you must be born again. If you walked into a room like this tonight after a long revival and your eyelids are heavy and you're sitting here and you begin to realize, you know, I'm having questions about my salvation. Don't leave this place tonight without being sure of it. Hell's hot and everlasting. And regardless of the Jehovah's Witnesses say there is no true hell and it's not eternal fire, the Bible speaks of hell. Right. And it's everlasting torment. If you're here tonight and not saved, get saved tonight. And if you are saved and God is pinching you somewhere inside about doing more for His kingdom and for the gospel's sake, don't hold back. The greatest place for you to be is right smack in the will of God for your life. Let God use you. There needs to be a generation of young people that grow up in Baptist churches and say, God gets first dibs in my life. I like other things. I'm wearing my Boston Celtic socks tonight because of the, the destruction of the heat last night. But the reality is there's more than dribbling a ball. There's people without Jesus that need that need the gospel. And you could say by the grace of God, I'm going to give my life to tell somebody about Jesus, both locally and around the world. Would you bow your head for prayer, please? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. You've listened so very well tonight. I just have two questions, and then Pastor Bishop, if you'll come, I... Question number one, as a believer, as a child of God, are there areas in your life where you ought to be doing more for the gospel and you've been holding out on God? I'm not just talking about your giving. Is there some role here at this church where you could be contributing or maybe you used to, but you've sort of gotten burnt and you feel like you just can't do it anymore anymore? Maybe you've never gotten involved to the degree you should have been in reaching people and being a witness. But you'd say tonight, Brother Tim, God spoke to my heart about my lack of compassion maybe, my lack of empathy, my hardened heart towards the souls of men. Maybe this evening God's been dealing with your heart about a particular person that's not saved and you've never witnessed to them. Maybe He's dealing with your heart about lack of giving to missions as an individual. But you'd say, Brother Tim, God's dealing with my heart about a certain area of my relationship with Him, and I want Him to give me strength and grace, and I want to make the decision that would honor and please Him. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If that's you tonight as a Christian, and God's dealt with your heart this evening about some capacity in your heart and life, your walk with the Lord, would you let me pray for you? Would you slip your hand up and hold it there until I see it? God bless you. God bless you all over the room. Now, maybe you're here tonight and you're not born again. Maybe you struggle with that. You might have made a profession. You might have got dunked in the baptistry once or twice. But you struggle with having the assurance of your salvation. And you'd have to say this evening, I just don't want to go to hell. I want to be sure of this. Is there anybody here on a Sunday night that would say, preacher, pray for me. I'm just not sure of my salvation. I do struggle when it's just me and the Lord in the bedroom at night and it's just between us. I struggle with doubts and fears and wonders about my own salvation. I want God to help me and give me grace. And I want to know for sure I'm saved. Would you do this? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, teenager, adult, doesn't matter. You'd say, Pray for me, Brother Tim. I'm just struggling with my salvation. Here's my hand. Don't leave this door, these doors, without having the peace in your heart, the assurance in your heart. Preacher, pray for me. I'm not sure about my salvation, but I'm concerned about it. I want you to pray for me. Here's my hand. Would you slip your hand up, hold it there, and then put it right back down? Slip it up in the air and then put it right back down. Let's pray. Father, we love you. How honored we are to stand in this pulpit. But Father, we, we want you to forgive us for our petty thoughts, our shallow living. May we somehow be able to see the loss through the eyes of Christ. Would you forgive us for being so concerned for our own families that we've forgotten other families? Help us, Lord, and forgive us for thinking about our temporal needs and not the eternal destiny of lost people. Bless this great church. Help these members to pull together as one body for the cause of Christ, for the glory of the name of Christ. Bless this pastor and bless our invitation in Jesus' name, preacher.